0: Michael Byers, uh, welcome to Radio Canada International, and thank you for taking my call once again.
1: Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Now, you've just published um, a scholarly article that looks at um, some of the similarities between the Arctic and the space. So uh, what brings together this two cold, dark, and dangerous places?
1: Well, the, uh, the title of the piece that, that you've just mentioned, Cold, Dark, and Dangerous, uh, signifies one of the, the similarities. Um, the, the Arctic and, and space uh, are remote, uh, extreme environments uh, where uh, human activity is, uh, is dangerous and expensive, and uh, these factors seem to push towards international cooperation. And that's actually what uh, started my my thinking uh, that led to this article. I uh, was looking at international cooperation in the Arctic after the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, and was finding that that cooperation was continuing. And then I noticed that... uh, Russian rockets were being used to carry American and European and Canadian astronauts to the International Space Station, which suggested that cooperation in space was also continuing. And so I put those, those two factors together, the remoteness, the extreme conditions, along with this continued cooperation as a, a research puzzle that I wanted to solve.
0: So, what's the you know the missing piece in this puzzle? What what is uh, driving this? Well,
1: there are a number of factors, and unlike uh, some academics, I, I I don't believe that one should try to to simplify to one explanatory factor. Um, and so, in, in the context of, of of this research article, I've identified eight different factors that that seem to be contributing to, to ongoing uh, Russian-Western cooperation in, in both the Arctic and in space. And to give you, um, you know, just a, a couple of examples, one of the, the commonalities between the Arctic and space is that both regions are militarized, but not uh, substantially weaponized. In other words, both the Arctic and space are used heavily uh, by militaries Uh, for surveillance and uh, for communication and sometimes for the transportation of weapons. But um, significant weapon systems are not actually based there. So in the the Arctic, um, we have submarines that travel under the Arctic sea ice. We have bombers that fly over the Arctic Ocean. Um, But those are not permanently stationed there. And in space, we have uh, literally uh... hundreds of military satellites providing communications and surveillance and even uh... targeting uh... for uh, advanced militaries uh... but as far as we know there are no anti-satellite weapons based in space nor is space used uh... for the deployment of weapon systems aimed at the surface of of the planet Um, And I think that that this this commonality uh, reflects, uh, among other things, that uh, uh, weaponizing these uh, regions would be extraordinarily expensive. It would be uh, a a major diversion away from the military investments and uh, uh, deployments that uh, uh, Russia and Western countries uh, do elsewhere in the world. Russia, for instance, is very heavily extended in in uh, Syria and uh, uh, in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, uh, in Crimea, and along the uh, other uh, borders of, of, of the Ukraine, um, the Arctic would be a, uh, an extreme stretch in, in terms of weaponization for Russia right now.
0: Mm. The other, uh, one of the other components that I found very interesting in your story is that uh, you also look into um, kind of the international law that uh, governs or uh, relations between states in the Arctic and in the space. So what's the commonality there?
1: Well, they, the commonality is that, that countries that distrust each other, like Russia and, and NATO countries, have found forms of international law and international lawmaking that enable them to cooperate, notwithstanding their, their distrust So, for instance, uh, they use a lot of what's called soft law uh, in the Arctic and space. And and soft law are non-binding instruments, so they're they're guidelines, they're uh, recommendations. Um, So there's there's no formal consequence in the event of a, a breach. But because they adopt these guidelines, because they make sense for all of the countries involved, they're usually followed. So they don't have the constrictions of binding law, but in actual practice, they work for all the countries involved. They work for Russia. They work for Canada. They work for the United States. Or to give you another example, um, in a lot of international lawmaking in the Arctic and space, they don't actually have votes to adopt uh, legal documents. They adopt documents by consensus. Everyone has to agree, and that effectively gives a veto to every single country, which means that they're all on board all of the time when documents are adopted. Now, this might sound a, a, a little bit you know, overly technical and, and, and uninteresting, but it's actually very important. Uh, they manage to create rules for the road even though they don't trust each other. Um, And that I I found particularly interesting because, you know, my initial uh, academic schooling was in international law and I've become a a professor of international politics. So this this finding of practical solutions, uh, making law work, even in times of distrust, uh, is very encouraging in terms of of what it offers as a, a lesson for other fields of international relations.
0: So, what are some of the lessons that uh, you think we can draw from you know our experiences in the Arctic and in in the space?
1: Well, I think the the big one is that uh, when countries have to cooperate, when there are strong reasons for cooperation, they find ways of of doing so. Um, and and one of the of the key examples in this uh, this article concerns Uh, search and rescue. Um, So search and rescue happens in the Arctic. Uh, We have a a treaty on search and rescue uh, that uh, uh, dates back to to 2011. But what a lot of people don't know is that we have a, a much earlier agreement to share our satellites for the purposes of supporting Search and rescue through emergency beacons that can be carried by prospectors, by by sailors, by by Inuit hunters uh, going out on the land or the sea ice, and this agreement dates back to the Cold War when the Soviet Union came together with the United States, Canada, and France to create uh, what's called the COSPAS-SARSAT program, um, and and so search and rescue has been a driving uh, commonality in in space and and in the arctic um, as a a reason for international cooperation and the reason i think it is so central is because ultimately we're all human beings and and search and rescue is needed when human lives are in danger and when that happens uh, people forget about politics they put rivalries to the side and they work together to save those lives I think that's a pretty important lesson as humanity faces some really significant challenges, uh, for instance, like like climate change. Or to give you another more extreme example, if we were to face a potentially devastating asteroid attack, um, countries would come together uh, to, to deal with that. Um, faced with an existential threat, I, I think that um, what my research shows is that when when the Going gets really tough. When things are really dangerous, uh, countries will cooperate.
0: Thank you very much. This is very, very interesting.
1: It's always a pleasure. And if anyone wants to find the article, it's available, uh, freely accessible at
0: the journal Polar
1: Record, which is the journal of the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge.
0: And I'll make sure to put a link to it in my store as well.
1: Good. Thank you very much.